commercial Brian Gold. Colin here, here on this podcast today to tell you about our grand opening of our new store, Big Slim Jim's Booze and Smokes. Grand opening for the ladies for Super Bowl Sunday. If you like booze, sure you do. We got two for one, buy one, get one on your Virginia Slims and your Virgin Cuba Libre. <laughs> Want the diet? Got that too. You like that, do ya? Over on our DVD section, we got your new Twilight movie. $5 off. I'm here to sponsor this podcast, this fine podcast for you. Along with the other ones, you know, you love them, you know them. What's on my finger and did you spell that? This is Oishel, Oishel Weinbold. Remember, visit me at Big Jim, Slim Jim's, Booze and Smokes off the belt line. Bogo, that's what you call it. Buy one, get one, Bogo. That's for you, lady. <laughs> okay, I'm beginning to regret my decision to have a sponsor on this Wait, show. Wait, do we have a sponsor now? <laughs> Somebody not tell me Big Jim's Little Jim Slim Jim Spokes and Smokes and uh, apparently a DVD section? <laughs> uh, I wanted to Wait, shake things up a little. intriguing. There's a new Twilight movie? <laughs> Decided for our tenth episode to kind of shake things up to keep you on your toes. There, I created the character. And Can there? What character? I need them to open one up here. I don't care if there's one off the belt line. I need one in Ohio. Though I'm almost sure that the belt line does run through Ohio. I've been on that son of a bitch. Do they have Misties? I mean, Virginia Slim is fine. Especially for the movie we're going to be watching, but do they have do they have Misty's? I want to know if they have Viceroy. I mean, do they have Parliaments that I can smoke <laughs> while I'm watching my new Twilight movie? <laughs> I love that guy. I think that guy should be around more often. <laughs> How long's our contract with him? <laughs> I don't it's know. A lifetime contract, buddy. <laughs> It's like a crossroads. Uh, you got me for life. It's like a crossroads contact. Can I play the blues now? <laughs> Jesus. Oh my god, there's this really creepy guy outside. I don't know what he's doing. He's talking about. He's trying to buy our house so we can open another know. spokes and smokes and stokes and oh two god. for one bogos. Um. Does he understand how bogos work? <laughs> no, no. Herschel understands nothing. I am intrigued by Herschel. I I want to really understand Herschel, so I hope he comes back uh, for later episodes, and maybe I can talk to Herschel. It's up. Can I ask him if Herschel can come out and talk? <laughs> do you want Do you want to talk to Herschel? I not not right now. Okay. No, I need to. Herschel is on call five times before I do that. Herschel's on call twenty four seven. See, is he? Yes. Yes. See, we gotta let him. We gotta let him relax. I mean, yeah. the last episode, episode nine, was a emotional skid mark to his brain, and then all of a sudden he's hit by Herschel. Well, Herschel knows skid marks. <laughs> so let, let's let let's let his brain fever die down a little bit before. I want to exist in a world where Herschel is real and owns the store. I can go to. <laughs> This. I'm, 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 we got a sponsor. <laughs> He's got a line on 
new Twilight movies. Yes. So that and, we'll probably be doing in ten years on this show. And and and, and, Vir- and Virgin Cooper Libres, both in regular and diet. Right, right. <laughs> I, I need some of those zero sugar four locos. Does he have those? <laughs> You know the ladies like the virgin diet praise apparently, <laughs> and they're on Boco. Two for one. Two for one Boco. <laughs> Which, okay, all right, Herschel. I think we just Speaking broke them. Things that make no sense. Uh, how's this joke doing? <laughs> wow, I think we broke Andy. Okay. <laughs> So welcome I survived to, the polar vortex. I'm ready for anything. <laughs> so welcome to episode 10 of uh, Cult Cinema Catacombs. And welcome to, uh, well, as we've seen in the first five minutes of this show, a very interesting episode. Uh, what's going to make this episode interesting is we're dealing with our first real serious movie and a piece of like beloved cinematic history but you wouldn't be able to tell here in America because it's become forgotten. Right. And also interesting because the movie actually takes place. I know that we want this show to be fairly evergreen, but it takes place at Valentine's Day. Yes, it does. And we're releasing this episode in February, just in time for Valentine's Day. Um, and Herschel's got some specials for Valentine's Day. <laughs> Yeah, he'll a- tell you all about him next episode. <laughs> I know the Valentine's Day will be over, but uh, not for Herschel. Well, I'm sure he'll be back with uh, specials for St. Patrick's Day. Oh, Herschel has all kinds of specials for, for, Pat, for St. Valentine's Day. <laughs> um, the film we're going to be looking at is uh, from the uh, year uh, 1975, and it's called Picnic at Hanging Rock. Uh, this is based on a best-selling novel from 1967, and uh, there's even a uh, there's even a new adaptation of this novel now on Amazon Prime that came out last mm-hmm. year. But Picnic at Hanging Rock, when it was a re- when it was released back in 1975, was not only one of the biggest films released in Australia. But when it's interesting that we're doing two movies about films that were released in Australia that were hits and then come over here and become hits uh, with uh, Riding the Bus with My Kangaroo that we did a while yeah. back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Picnic at a Hanging Rock was a hit here as well and apparently was an influential film for, for people. But you, you may be sitting there and asking yourself, as, as Andy mentioned before we began recording, you know, here's this movie that is pretty much in Australia on the same level as films like Ben-Hur and Giant and um, Casablanca and other really beloved, well-done movies of the past. And like we also said, it was a hit when it came here in America. Why is a show like this covering a movie like this? And why are we, Andy? (laughs) Well, so I used to hear about this movie from Dear Old Dad and Dear Old Dad, if you ever listened to some of the older podcasts that we've done um, back before this podcast, you know, he is a little bit of a provocateur of um, 
what we would consider, I guess, cult cinema, but for him it was just like stuff that he would find that nobody really watched that he thought was cool, and he used to talk about this movie all the time. Um, I think one of the reasons is because this movie is as popular as it is, and neither you nor I, massive film buffs, have seen it, and that is very telling. Especially since this got like a a giant uh, 4K restoration on the Criterion Collection, and you know, has got a remake now out and has been influential for many people. Um, in fact, you, you were mentioning about how Sofia Coppola mm-hmm. uh, was inspired uh, by this for uh, The Virgin Suicides. Also, yeah. I also found out that it also did some inspiration for Marie Antoinette. Yeah. Um, the, the rock group Rasputina, in one of their uh, albums, also used dialogue from the movie to incorporate into their songs as well. And if you need um, Rasputina branded platform patent leather boots that go up (laughs) above your knee, visit Herschel's. Um, (laughs) Yes. And also this, this film also influenced uh, um, as I'm reading here on the Wikipedia's um, it, according to uh, Wikipedia, this movie also influenced Chloe Sevigny's personal fashion style, <laughs> which will probably be the most interesting factoid. That's not true. Is that true? You didn't just no. Read that? I wish I was making it up, but it's it says no, it right fantastic. here. So I mean, I, I think that's going to be our most interesting factoid about this movie, besides the person who directed it, yeah, of course. My favorite line in the trailer. By the way, the trailer is four minutes long. Yes. I love the seventies so much. Um, is uh, we got permission to take our glo- you got permission to take your gloves off once you're out of town yes <laughs> because it's going to be hot today <laughs> but yeah so the movie the film is, is much loved and I think lost to the masses a little bit um, and you know those that remember it speak very fondly of it and try to convince other people to watch it which you know by kind of the definition of this show is a cult film because yeah. that's basically what this is. It's Roy telling me to watch movies that he wants me to watch that I haven't seen, and then I cry. Um, but <laughs> but at the same time, at the same, catal- it's also the catalyst for this entire podcast. Yes, because I mean, not only are we looking at the strange and unusual movies that we can't believe exist, which is why our Twitter handle is "These Films Exist." But the other side of that, "These Films Exist," is to find these long forgotten movies that deserve to be rediscovered and, uh, you know, watched by a much more broader audience. Oh, I don't think that um, Riding the Bus My Sister deserves to be rediscovered. No, I think that's going to be a fluke. Um, that'll, yeah. that, well, we also want to watch movies that you just want to set on fire. <laughs> <laughs> like, like that one. Um, uh, and by the way, I just looked up the uh, Internet Movie Database trivia on this movie and can confirm, yes, Chloe Sevigny says that this movie inspired her fashion sense. I'm sorry, what? What? Like, <laughs> Which answers so many questions about her. <laughs> that is the most random piece of trivia. Who does that, by the way? What's full stop to this podcast who decides to base their fashion sense on a 1975 mi- a mystery thriller from Australia? <laughs> Chloe Sevigny, apparently. I guess so. Because that's Check how she rolls. <laughs> Check. 
and mates. <laughs> That's how she rolls. <laughs> so weird. That is so weird. So this movie is also based on a book, right? Yeah, it, the book came out in 1967. Um, the 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 book Picnic at Hanging Rock is a bestseller as well. Um, it was uh, written by Joan Lindsay. And um, it was not only a bestseller in uh, Australia, but also in the UK and here in America as well. Um, it is considered uh, historical fiction because of the time period it takes place in. Um, and as a matter of fact, apparently it uh, is kind of loosely based on an actual tourism that happened at this hanging rock because the story itself is fictitious but the location is real and apparently it is not known for being a safe rock so uh so i guess with a name like hanging rock i guess so uh so they kind of um were um using the folklore that came out of this location I mean, and not only with the story as well, but to kind of end tourism for that area. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, which is which is interesting. I, I mean, I, I was reading. I, I'm like, I was able to glean that part of the information. I was like, that's actually pretty interesting. I, I would not have realized that. But since this is coming out of Wikipedia, I do ask our Australian listeners. Please correct us if we're wrong. Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, I was about ready to bring that up. Please do actually uh, let us know if we're wrong. And I also, uh, uh, as uh, I don't know if you discovered this as well, but we have some listeners from Australia, I found out through Facebook, because they got super excited to hear that we were covering this movie. Um, uh, also, if you happen to be Chloe Seventy and you want to reach out to us and have a conversation about your wardrobe choices, <laughs> we're always here. Uh, but apparently it is said that um, at Hanging Rock, uh, one of the reasons why they also say uh, that they want people to keep away from it is, is because apparently there's also a historical connection with the Aborigines. It's kind of like a, uh, okay. it's kind of like that a variation sense. of ancient Indian burial grounds here where instead a lot of, of Aboriginals were either murdered by colonists there or died of smallpox disease. Um, so they, they, there's also stories about the location being haunted and everything else. Smallpox? So. What is it? Seattle? <laughs> right? White people! Vaccinate! So, yeah, there's a lot going on uh, with this. So, I, I, so apparently this, this book is cited as also another reason why. I'm, I'm sure it's not the true reason why, but uh, I guess the government... You know, turns around and says, "This could happen to you." In the book, like the uh, like sensation, madness. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but yeah, um, again, like you also mentioned, Andy, this this was the catalyst for this show because when you first brought the idea to me, you mentioned this movie first. Yes. And yeah, because I, I hadn't seen it, mm -hmm. and I said, "Roy, you know, you are hit deep." in this kind of, you know, ob obscure at this point, um, well, you know, have you seen this? And you were, and you basically said, no, I haven't, like, I want to. And that's what kind of the ball rolled from there. Yeah. 
And I'm actually, I'm, and the thing is, is I'm kind of ashamed that I've not seen this one. I'm glad Me that too. we are. I'm glad to see that we are looking at this, especially when I see uh, who it's directed by. It's directed by Peter Weir, who has done some amazing movies. Uh, for those who don't recognize the name, here's some of the other films that he's done: um, Gallipoli, uh, The Year of Living Dangerously, Witness, Mosquito Coast, Dead Poet Society, Green Card, Fearless. The Truman Show and Master and Commander: The Far Side of the World. Just you know, yeah, you know, little films, basically. <laughs> little films. Yeah, this isn't and, like I said. This isn't our standard yeah. fare. No. Real yeah, this is this is a little bit of a departure even for us, but it's important, I think. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, this is a guy who you know he's he's been nominated for many awards, Academy Awards, Golden Globes. BAFTA Awards, I mean, and I, I mean, prior to this movie, he made another film that's kind of in the same vein of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, uh, <laughs> called the car, the cars that ate Paris. Oh no, he did not make the cars that ate Paris. Yes, he did, and the oh, car, that's the, awesome. And I mean, that's a very well-known cult film, and like I said, it is in the same vein of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, where. It's a cult film, but it's made to make fun of these films that became cult films because it's just such a ridiculously but hilarious, fun movie. So he goes from making this, you know, comedy farce to this extremely serious subject matter of Picnic at Hanging Rock. Um, my biggest thing was to not read the plot synopsis on Wikipedia because I want to be totally surprised by this right. film. Um, besides the trailer, have you looked into anything else beyond that or? Nope. Just what I saw in the trailer. I don't want to know. Like you said, I know it's a period. I know it's a mystery thriller mm -hmm. and, and I love, I love seventies mystery thriller. And, and I especially just love trailers because, you know, there's a pacing. They hadn't quite figured out what sells yet. You know, like like the way they, they everything's homogenized now. Yeah. When you watch a trailer, um, you're you're gonna take an '80s song and you're gonna slow it down, and then um, Halle Berry is going to be on a cell phone, and uh, <laughs> that's your trailer. And all of a sudden, <laughs> the movie makes it whatever it was supposed to make to to make its money back and not very much more, and it's gonna have like a 72 percent of Rotten Tomatoes, and everybody's gonna get it at Redbox because they're like, oh, 72. Yeah, it could be worse. But in the seventies, they hadn't figured it out yet, so everything's got that that weird pacing to it, mm -hmm. where it's just like kind of like disturbingly plodding. Especially something like a horror movie or a mystery or a thriller from the seventies is kind of plodding, and they're trying to give you enough to entice you, but not quite giving you enough that you know what's going on in the film. Like it's, I just love. I love those trailers. They make me so happy. And this is a four-minute version of that shit. Yeah. Well, I mean, the trailer for Dot and the Kangaroo was four minutes, too, but it was... It should a, have been four minutes. <laughs> but Dot and the Kangaroo, when, when it did that, I mean, that was an example of less is more. So... Right. Uh, right. <laughs> this, on oh, the other hand... Less. Yeah. Really? This, on the other hand, I don't think it would have been as intriguing if had they not taken their slow burn time with the trailer like they did because I you're sitting there and I, I'm kind of getting this um, I, I mean we'll find out for sure after we're done watching and I'm kind of getting like a 
uh, old school version of the Wicker Man vibe from yep. this. Yep. Uh, which is not only a masterpiece of slow burn terror, but you know, you got that twist ending that just comes out of nowhere, which was of course ruined by bees and Nicolas Cage in the remake. Nothing's ruined by Nicolas Cage. <laughs> <laughs> But I, when the when the when the, when the ending hits in and you find out just how sinister the Wicker Man is, I mean, it just is flabbergasting. And I'm kind of hoping maybe the same thing happens with Picnic and Hangry, at uh, Hanging Rock. Yeah, I'm with that. Um, Roger Ebert even praised this movie, which, by the way, this film has a 94 percent on Rotten Tomatoes, so it's very well beloved. Uh, Roger Ebert called this film a film of haunting mystery and buried sexual hysteria and employs two of the hallmarks of modern Australian film, beautiful cinematography and stories about the chasms between settlers from Europe and the mysteries of the ancient new home. Yeah, again, pretty big departure from what we are used to doing here for the last nine movies. Yeah. And I'm excited to have that. I loathe to call it a palate cleanser because I do believe it's kind of right in, in the wheelhouse of what we're attempting to do with this show. But it's going to be really different for us, I think. I think we need this movie after what <laughs> we experienced in the last episode anyway because that last episode left us pissed off. That, yeah, it did. Uh, it did. <laughs> that we actually watched that film. Um, I, the, the next couple, the next couple of films coming up, though, I mean, it, 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 we we are going to kind of take a little bit into a different direction with our next few films. Um, I, I mean, I've already announced that after this one, we're doing Rock and Rule, which I can't wait to get right. to also because it's kind of in the same vein of this, where it's um, a little more serious than what we've dealt with. But uh, in the meantime, though. Let's go ahead and dive into this uh, mystery in the outback, and uh, we'll be right back after we have witnessed the mystery that is a, a picnic at Hangring Rock. With some words from our sponsor, Herschel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, Herschel. Thank <laughs> you. 
Well, that was quite possibly the most highfalutin, hoity-toity movie we've watched so far. Let's talk about this shit now, please. <laughs> wow, I, 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 I gotta say, after uh, with it's well, first of all, it's great that we saved it for this episode. Because it's Valentine's Day and this movie set on Valentine's Day, so it's great that we actually this was an accidental serendipitous only, moment. But they get that nod to Valentine's Day once, like well, they don't they don't bandy about the Valentine's Day. I think it's only once, and it's like in a the only time I know that I caught it was like at the funeral. Well, not only that, but even in the beginning of the movie with the cake, they're like, to say Valentine, to say Valentine. Like, like that cake scene was creepy. <laughs> like, that smash cut cake part was, just go. I can't. I got a lot. I got but, a lot. So. <laughs> I, I will say, after everything that we've watched prior to this, coming to this one... It's definitely very highfalutin hoity-toity compared to like the Terror of Tiny Town and and I, the other ones. I put it on par with Liquid Sky. Yeah, definitely, except a, a lot more highbrow, I think, than Liquid Sky was. I this this it, it's this movie's an enigma. It really is because at least with Liquid Sky, you could tell that it was a science fiction movie, even though it was just a bonkers science yeah. fiction movie this one it's hard to pinpoint what type of genre it really is because it's a historical drama it's set yeah. around you know this real rock that exists in australia it's a mystery there's some supernatural elements going on with it yet yeah, I, 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 well here so i understand completely how it gets classified at least by us as a cult film right because there's at the end of the movie i have way more questions than i had going into the movie. oh yeah definitely so many more questions it was i i was when when you and i were talking before the show i we were comparing it i guess to like a, a like the 70s direction of like let's say a kubrick or but i really I really feel by the end that it, it that it was it was almost Lynchian in its um, execution, mm -hmm. where you just don't like it. Could be like uh, like what was the name of the God damn it? It's escaping me now. Um, with Bill Pullman, where he played the saxophone player. Oh, Lost Highway. Yeah, it's almost Lost Highway esque in that where it takes I'm multiple viewings. This, yeah. From now on, we've, we're going to stop doing cult cinema catacombs, and this is going to be <laughs> picnic and hanging rock every week until we figure this shit out. Because <laughs> I, yeah, like it's like that where I left and I went and resaw Lost Highway four times, and then I've seen it again, like on because I saw it in the theater four times, and then I and then I watched it a couple more times, and I just gave up. I was like, I can't with this. Um, only later to find out Lynch was like, I had no idea what it was supposed to mean. I just made the movie and I'm like, shut the... Uh. But, but that's kind of where I'm at with this movie. I have theories. I have theories, but nothing concrete. Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, we... Spoiler alert, there's really no resolve. I mean, it's, it's left None. to... It, yeah, it's left to us to kind of figure out 
what happened. And I mean, we upon watching this movie, and we'll get to the lost ending in a moment. We discovered there was a lost ending to this movie, um, and we'll describe how that quote unquote helped as well. Um, but uh, I don't know that it did. I don't know that it did. <laughs> but let's let's let let's start at the beginning with this thing. Let's let's go back to the beginning with the whole to Saint Valentine thing and that creepy cake cutting sequence. That's the first. That is the first moment where I realized. Something weird is going on because I, I mean, in the beginning, we get the sense that these two characters are lesbian lovers and they're, they're keeping their lesbian love affair secret because it's 1900 Australia where this uh, school is being run by Uber bitch. Um, um, by the way, I just want to be very clear about this up front. Yeah. Okay. Miranda is a Botticelli angel. And I <laughs> Real clear about that right now. Oh, that line came out of nowhere. I was like, multiple times it came out of nowhere. Just every line came out of nowhere. Nothing. It was so disjointed. Like nothing really made sense, even in the line delivery or the script. Like it was so broken that it was. It was that weird, like. Sentinel Marathon Man off-putting 70s style, you know, where it's just like, what? Ugh, I just feel gross in my belly. <laughs> but, I mean, I was... My, the, 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 the mega bitch that was in charge of the school. Sarah. Right? Yeah. Headmaster, headmistress Sarah. <laughs> the Australian Outback Suspiria School, basically, as you called it. <laughs> yes, um, I, <laughs> um, I stand by that. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I understand that uh, the Australian outback and the heat can do things to you, but that hair—oh my god! I was I was fixated on her hairdo through this whole thing because I'm I'm looking at it and I'm going, okay, hairspray and hair gel didn't exist in 1900. How the hell did you get your hair that pristinely helmeted on top of your head? Where everyone else in this movie looked like they were in desperate need of conditioner. <laughs> it was it was definitely some sort of hair based cephalopod like a, like an octopus. It had like springy tendrils down the side, but that giant bulbous back on it. Like, <laughs> I and, and 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 right away it made me realize that this was the 1900s because when they were being sent off to the picnic, except for the orphan girl who. She's got this weird fixation on in this movie. Um, one of the two lesbian lovers, that is. Um, she's sending them off, and they're all dressed in their nice, I guess their white suffragette outfits. I don't know what they <laughs> I, it made. It actually made Chris turn to me and go, were there suffragettes in Australia? Because they're, they're wearing the suffragette outfits. <laughs> and so... It's like she says that when they got past, I forgot what part it was, because it was going to be a hot day, they could take off their gloves. And I'm like, scandal! They're taking <laughs> off their gloves! <laughs> Not the gloves! And even when they got to the town, it's like it was this whole ceremony where they're like, oh, gloves! We're free in our sexual prime now! They were real excited about taking off their gloves. <laughs> yes, too. they were. And so I'm like sitting here going, okay, 1900s repression. Okay, I can get that. And then they get to Hanging Rock. 
And they have their toast to St. Valentine, and then the cake cutting happened in the most disturbing cake cutting scene I've you ever just, seen. You like, just smashed to this cake and then a knife just going into the cake. Just, oh. It was, it's just like, whoa. She did it very serial killer style and I'm just like, oh, so she's going to murder them. It was what right. I was immediately thinking is that she was going to go nanners and kill everybody. Oh, fantastic. Somebody's going to die. <laughs> And then, you know, they're all hanging around the, the hanging rock, you know, and I'm... Languishing is the only term I'm going to use for what they were doing around hanging rock. I'm like going, oh, they look like they're having so much fun. Look look at the, the quote-unquote smiles on their faces. <laughs> they were so excited to get out there, and then they're just like... It looked like a, uh, a Calvin Klein for him ad. <laughs> Speaking of Calvin Klein for him, suddenly then we go to this family, this like like this ne'er do well family who's picnicking there as well, and their little boy who goes to run off, I guess, with the the stable boy of the family. I don't know. There's some interesting stuff well, going on some, with them there, too. There's some real homoerotic uh, undertones to those two. Yeah, the the, the tattooed the tattooed stable boy. And as they run off, he's warned about uh, the apparent major threats of the Australian outback, which are snakes and ants. Poisonous snakes and poisonous ants. Yes, which we are reminded many times throughout the first ten minutes of the movie. Oh, yes. (laughs) That there are poisonous snakes and poisonous ants in the outback. Everywhere. Everywhere. (laughs) Which makes me ask. Which makes me ask, why would anybody want to then go out and picnic in the outback? And I, the I will say that the rock formation is interesting. I mean, I, I looked it up, and this rock formation exists, and apparently there's some, a lot of you know religious history around it with the Aborigines and stuff, and it's kind of like. Um, there it's, it's, it's kind of like Australia's version of Stonehenge and, uh, and Native American burial grounds here in America. Right. But at the same time, I was going, why would anybody go picnic at this place on purpose if there is, one, so many poisonous snakes and ants, and two, if it looked as dead as it did? I, <laughs> I, I, I think it's probably just one of those field trip type things you know it gets you out of school you don't have to be in the weird suspiria dance class um that we find out later is happening um, you don't have to worry about uh, old groundskeeper willie oh god yes he came out of nowhere it's like two scenes of groundkeeper willie just out there there was once I, I know i'm jumping ahead but there's one scene with groundkeeper willie that it serves only to introduce us to groundkeeper willie mm-hmm. but the scene makes no sense in the context of the movie. Like, none. It's just like, why, what are we doing? Yeah, <laughs> none whatsoever. So so our first hint that something weird is going on is the cake cutting. The second hint that something weird is going on is the fact that everyone's watch dies. And at so, noon. At right? noon, at noon. So everyone's watch dies. And I go, oh, okay, well, they're stuck in time. And, or something. Or something. Yeah, something just happened. Whether it be alternate dimension stuff or time or something just happened. Mm-hmm. And even though the headmistress said that nobody should do any, quote, tomboy foolery <laughs> by w- climbing on the rock, 
Four of the girls go ahead and go do it anyway. One of them, including Miss, I'm going to slash this St. Valentine Day cake like it's your own heart, which makes me go, oh, she's going to kill him. Here we go. Here comes the serial killer part. Yeah. And, yeah well, yeah. that never happened. but um, oh, Or did it? Or did it? <laughs> we don't know. So they, they break the rules and they go up to the rock and then all of a sudden everyone gets this sleeping curse put on them. <laughs> Out of nowhere, well, before that, we had the fat girl bitching because I guess, you know, she's fat, so she needed a bitch. So, can you explain? I'm not going to refer to her as the fat girl. Um, <laughs> Zofdig. Madam Zofdig. That, that was Minnie, I believe. I was can't that remember. The character? I just remember her. I just was throughout the movie was calling her the bitching girl because. All right, fine. The bitching girl. We'll call her the bitching girl. Because <laughs> that's all she did was bitch had the most insane reactions to literally everything that happened. Oh my god, I feel sick. I feel ill. When are we going back? Can't we just look at this goddamn rock on the log? Well, so they're out there and they get struck in with their sleeping sickness and then not the just them, but everybody around the rock, even the right. even the family who the hoity toity family who was there, all of a sudden everybody is asleep for no reason. And, and three of the girls, we get the scene of them walking up the path, and the path is very important. We get the path over and over again. And they're walking, walking up the path all David Lynch style. Yeah, all David Lynch style. And then we smash cut to bitching girl literally wakes up and just starts screaming. Yeah, because apparently she saw something, but we don't know what. Right. Just starts screaming at the top of her lungs. Now, I have a, a, a piece of the, the theory pie here that I want to run by you okay. about the path. Okay? Okay. Yeah, because this is not the first time we see this path. This path is a very important element to the story. So they walk up the path, and that's the last we see of these girls. Yes, that's the disappearance that is that haunts the entire movie, mm -hmm. and and spy everything spirals out of this disappearance. Right, these three girls walk up the path, or is it four? Four disappear. Three walk up the path. Right. Well, no, three, no, 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 no. Because three, bitching girl's still there. Yeah, the bitching girl's so, still there, but for some reason, oh yeah, we need to go back and explain that everybody fell asleep except for that school teacher, the scientist, the mathematician scientist. However, she goes missing also because bitching girl runs past her. Right. We find out she run, she ran past her and she was like frolicking apparently in her bloomers. Um, we don't see Which this. Which was a it's weird scene too because yeah. bitching girl was like laughing maniacally when she was telling that story. Yeah. Like, like I don't want to say. <laughs> she was in her naughties. You know. Yeah. So, yeah, so the three girls go up the path, all slow motion David Lynch style, and when Bitching Girl wakes up and notices this, she's screaming at her not to do it, and when they go up, anyway, then she's screaming bloody murder. Just screaming. Now, the path. We see the path about seven or eight more times, yeah. for real. Every time we see it after this, with the exception of one... Nobody can either either they can't make it up the path or it is the most arduous thing we've ever seen anybody do in their life. They're like clawing, bloody, trying to climb up this yeah. path. The three girls just frolic right up the path. 
Yeah, absolutely no, no effort. Yeah, no effort. So there's something to that. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm working on that theory right now. Join us for the next six episodes. <laughs> yeah, that is that is a good Shit, point. Because, hanging rock. Because <laughs> that's a good point. Because, yeah, they have absolutely no issue going up that hill. But when the, uh, the, the, the high society boy goes looking for them, he can't even go up that path. Right. And then when his stable boy goes up yeah, that path, he has difficulty going up the path. He a lot of difficulty. Yeah, yeah, he eventually gets up there, but yeah, he had struggle getting up there also. Um, and other people who have tried going up there, as we saw in the film, had trouble going up that path. So there's something about that path was trying to block these people from finding the truth, whatever the hell the truth is, because we don't ever find out the truth. I think... I think that's, I think that that's the way out of. I, I think it's purgatory. I'm just going to come out right now and say it. And I think that's the way out. And if you're not ready to go, you can't go. Interesting. Interesting. That's what I think because the only other person that we see make it up the path is in the alternate ending. Yeah, the alternate ending. Yeah. Well, now when when they do finally get to go successfully up there in the search for the girls, they did find one of the girls. And she has absolutely zero memory as to what happened. Say, the same with um, Bitching Girl. She doesn't remember what she saw. So Well, it, and, and keep in mind, this is they find a girl in the beginning of the third act. Mm-hmm. After they have had the entire town of Hogsmouth or whatever it's called. <laughs> the school and everyone... You know, bloodhounds and everybody in town searching Hanging Rock for the for any sign of these girls. By the way, I loved the random Aborigine guy wearing the Captain Jack Sparrow outfit. That I, I was yes. I was, yes. I was <laughs> transfixed by him in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but all of a sudden, one of the girls shows up. Yeah, because um, because a highfalutin high society boy can't let it go and, and it seems striking to me that they let it go that the re- that the rest of everyone let it go as easy as they did yeah and highfalutin society boy and his um not boyfriend um right off into the you know they're like well we're going and then he sneaks out the next morning and uh stable hands there old huck finn is there with his <laughs> horses waiting on him and they ride out um and uh he he goes into the hanging rock and is gone for what what feels like an exorbitant amount of time because he passes out too. Yeah. He gets stricken with what might be the sleeping sickness too. Um, only to come to and find one of the girls there. Um, and, and he's all and, beaten and he's like beaten the living shit also. I, well, they, and they – one of the weirdest scenes in the entire movie is the stable hand um, riding out because the stable hand goes in and finds him because he's worried about his friend. He's worried about his lover. Yeah, whatever. And then then rides out, goes back to town and gets some help and is coming back. And he's riding his horse in front of a horse and carriage full of like constable, constable (laughs) guys. He's waving them to go fast. Come on, like, come on, let's go, let's go. Fast as they 
can. They're keeping pace. They can't go any faster unless they run you over, you dipshit. (laughs) (laughs) That was a weird scene. Um, But I want to talk for a second about the... About the... um, uh, The orphan. Yeah, oh God, the the, the poor put upon orphan, yeah. Orphan plays a larger part in this film than we're giving the orphan credit for. Yeah. Um... Because she, she's more than just the secret lesbian lover of one of the girls missing. There's a lot to her character in this. Right. And I also think that – well, there was also that weird affair between the ground – one of the, like the, the, the house help and one of the teachers. Yes. Where he makes her sing the weird song or she makes him sing the weird song. I think that's many. Is that many? That I think is many. Yeah, the one who yeah, the one who worked in the green. Yeah, she back, had the affair it? with the guy who was the assistant in the greenhouse. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, that was a weird little affair. Aside, <laughs> that made no sense and had nothing to do with the plot of the movie. None whatsoever. <laughs> at all. Aside from to, to, to establish that uh, Sarah Appleyard is a bitch. Yeah, um, there's a lot of that, oppression going on in that school. So not only with the students, but she's also oppressing her faculty as well. Okay, so where are we? <laughs> so we're talking about the orphan girl. And we, we get to see an interaction between the orphan girl and uh, <laughs> the, the, the head minstress. And we basically get this moment where it's it's about the reciting of the poetry and orphan girl doesn't want to recite the poem because she doesn't get it but instead has written her own poem called a ode to saint valentine and wanted to read it to the headmistress but the headmistress instead of allowing her to read it suppresses her again saying you know no you're going to read this you're going to memorize it and you're going to like it right and, and, and thus, thus continues the whole thing throughout the whole course of the film with how, for some reason, this orphan girl became her whipping girl in this movie. Yeah, like her nemesis, this orphan girl. Um, but, but regardless, um, you were saying they found the girl, they brought the girl back, and I believe that was Irma that they found and brought back. She has no memory, and of course she's she's leaving the school as well as a couple of other students because this whole this whole thing has become sensationalized throughout the entire world. And as, as stuff always does when it gets sensationalized, Hanging Rock is now a tourist location because not only are there people there looking for the, um, the missing girls, but you see people picnicking there and and playing there and the press is there and the school is now getting negative press because of this. So we're looking at the closure of the school. So headmistress decides to take it out on orphan girl. Well, and headmistress is in the midst of all of this happening is super worried about tuitions and people not paying tuitions and people coming back to the school and the fact that the orphan girl can't pay her tuitions um, means that all anything extracurricular is going to have to be cut. Orphan girl can't do it, and then orphan girl gets later on. Orphan girl gets kicked out of the school. After being strapped to a wall so that way she could learn better posture. Right. Which was just, what the hell when that happened? I was like, oh my god, when that happened. Right. There's a lot going on in this movie. There's there's overtones of colonization because you got the the Australian-British dynamic 
um, and a lot of the characters and a lot of the interactions. Oh, yeah. There's like, you know, the, the, the lesbian homoerotic undertones between virtually everybody in the movie. Yeah. Um, you got, you, know, you got, you got this woman who is trying to suppress any creativity in her school and mm-hmm. she's losing control of her school as a result of this. And then plus also as a result of the negative publicity coming from the, the thing she starts descending into alcoholism as we see in the movie. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, is taking it out on this orphan girl and the orphan girl, you know, finding out that she's being sent back to the orphanage felt that there's no other way out and spoiler alert commits suicide in a very horrific way. But Roy, does she? That that's the thing. Does she? Because when you go, because the way that the movie is and the way that the movie ends and it ends with basically no ending you know, and we find out that in, in the end of the movie that the headmistress went to the rock and she was found mysteriously dead and they assume that it's that she slipped and broke her neck. But then when you go and, and, and watch the the missing ending, which I think they honestly should have kept in the film. I don't know why they did not. Well, so what we get is we get to scene, we get the second scene with the groundskeeper Willie. And, and yeah. he goes into his ground and, and he finds some broken pieces of something outside of his groundskeeper, you know, his greenhouse. And he's like, yeah, damn kids. And then he goes in and he's looking around. And all of a sudden he sees the the poor orphan girl, like just dead as shit. Cause she went, she's, and he looks she's a up. pancake at this point. Yeah. And looks up and she had come through the roof from her window above. Then we immediately cut to the Sarah's office and the groundskeeper comes busting in. He's knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking. And finally he opens the door looking for her to tell her that this girl had jumped from her window. And, she, and she's dressed in like morning clothes. And I'm like, she's dressed in morning clothes. She's looking straight ahead for 30 to 40 seconds. And then just turns and looks at the groundskeeper. Doesn't say anything. And then you cut to the, the voiceover for the end of the movie saying that she had been found and, and she was killed. Or, or she had been, she is dead. So yeah, it kind of lays the hint there as to, I mean, one, she already knew about her death. So it, yep. it, so it makes you wonder if two, she pushed her off the roof. Oh, that bitch killed her, Roy. Yeah. That's what happened. <laughs> Which makes me then wonder how many of these things are in some way, shape, or form perpetrated by the headmistress. Yeah. And her alcoholism. Because, I mean, it, it was, it's when we see her drunk, she's drunk and is completely unaware of anything that's going on and the the scene where she's having after all the girls go off for holiday and she's there having the banquet with just one other person right and you know she's drunkenly telling her her past holidays all of a sudden she just gets like roid rage angry out of nowhere Mm-hmm. And then goes back to being happy. So at that point, you kind of get the glimpse of she's more dangerous than we think she is. Well, I think what has happened is what we see throughout throughout the movie is somebody with an absolute desire to have control, and that control being stripped from them by the instant on Hanging Rock, mm-hmm. and all of the outside influences coming into her world. And I think that she goes insane. I think she loses her mind throughout the period of this movie where she cannot keep 
a grasp on. And I think that that's the underlying thing, theme of, of the movie is chaos versus order. Yeah. I think that the school is so ordered and the, the whole point is you can't control whatever it is and it, it will break you if you try. And I think that that's what we, we saw definitely with the headmistress, but also with the rest of the students lose their minds too. Oh yeah. Cause when, when the, when um, the survivor is brought in for a brief moment to say goodbye to the class before she heads home, the class loses their goddamn mind and start like beating on her, screaming at her to tell the truth what happened. And yeah, it was, it's total chaos at that point, And it gets to an almost physically, well, it does get to a physically violent level, but it gets to the point where it looks like the girls are ready to rip her to shreds. It gets to that Suspiria level of, you know, like, like, Pazuzu the demon exorcist like yeah. close-ups on faces and screaming and um, and she's wearing interestingly interestingly everyone's in there in their whites and they're in dance class with this hell bitch of a dance teacher <laughs> <laughs> who quit um, by the way she quit after after this after this incident she quit she couldn't she, well, yeah. she couldn't handle it anymore <laughs> fucking box catcher in there teaching them how to dance um <laughs> Um, and then, um, she comes in wearing the brightest red we've seen because the movie's very washed. It's got a, it's got a, it's got a pastiche, almost a sepia tone pastiche to the entire film. Well, it's got that muted seventies tone to it. And and, I mean, which the remake of Suspiria had, it has that really very distinct look, but when she comes in. Just it's the red. first time we've ever gotten this sudden burst yep. of bright color out of nowhere, and it's it's very off-putting, and I mean, in in, in a right way because it it focuses all attention to her, but it's almost as if like it's a rebirthing. It's a. I, I feel like it's your first visual, one of your first visual cues of chaos of the breaking of the order because everything was white and everybody had the same shoes on and everybody was lined up exactly the same way. And she came straight down the middle of two rows of students in bright red, completely breaking the scene up in her hello dolly hat. Also don't forget. Yeah, she did. She was rocking that hello dolly hat for sure. (laughs) And yeah, just the chaos explodes. The teacher can't, you know, she can't even, after it happens (laughs) she can't even hiding behind the piano so she quits um which thus sends the the headmistress into more despair because chaos because she can't control it and then so like we said the movie just ends after after the orphan girl dies it just ends we get the narration about how the headmistress was found dead at hanging rock of an apparent accident um the other girls were never found. Uh, so the, so the other, the other two, uh, the other two missing girls and the school teacher, they've never been found no matter what the efforts were. And it's become a cold case. The, there is a lost ending to the movie, which I guess was part of the criterion collection release. Okay. And so we, we both watched the lost ending. I honestly feel the lost ending should have been part of the film 
because yes. the lost ending deepens the mystery of what yeah, goes on in the film. Anything. It just deepens the mystery. Yeah. That's all it does. But it was a really, really good scene. I, it's a cool. I, it's a cool ass scene. It's yeah, a great, it would be a cool ass way to end that film. It was a great ending because she goes to the rock in her funeral outfit that she's wearing and starts walking up and she gets to the same point where everybody else gets to to fall asleep and she herself suddenly falls ill of the sleeping disease. Well, and, and the thing that struck me was you get the entire scene up to the point where she's staring at the groundskeeper, right? Like yeah. it's the same ending. So all they did was just cut the rest of it yeah. for the theatrical release. But but we all we know for sure is that for some reason, and there's no reason for her to go to the Hanging Rock at this point, she she just goes to the Hanging Rock. Yeah, she goes to the and, Hanging Rock. And, it, and there are little subtleties in this entire scene that shows that she has lost control to the point where I believe that she was insane. She opens the gate and just swings it open and doesn't close it again. Yeah, her hair is unkept. Throughout yes. the whole entire film, this hair was like... Not we, it hate. was enough for you to notice and make one of the first comments on this show was <laughs> her hair. Yeah. Like, but now it's out of whack. It's, it's out of control. Completely are, unkept. You know. Yeah. She doesn't care about her dress getting dirty. I mean, because when she collapses on the ground asleep, she's covered in that red dirt. She doesn't care. She absolutely doesn't care. Uh, she just feels compelled to go up this rock for some reason. And then she gets to the path she looks up the path, and we see a silhouette of a girl, and suddenly I'm thinking, oh, it's the girl with the knife that cut the cake earlier. It's Botticelli Angel. Yeah, it's the Botticelli Angel, but no, it's the orphan girl. That which, she but, that died. <laughs> yeah, and suddenly I'm like, what the ever-living fuck is going on here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have, I have my theories, right? Yeah. The... the She's getting her that either a it's a ghost story, mm-hmm. right? And the orphan girl is going to get her revenge on the insane, you know. And at this point, guilt-ridden Sarah, who I believe still could not control the orphan girl, so killed the orphan girl. Yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm landing. Goes to Hanging Rock, uh, is greeted at the path by orphan girl. Orphan girl lures her up. And she either is pushed to her demise or jumps to her demise out of insanity and grief. Yeah. Um, or, like I said, is Australia purgatory? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they find her dead with her neck broken. Uh, so I mean, it's so either she either she did absolutely slip on her way up and landed wrongly, or ghost got revenge. Or, I mean, who, who knows what happened? All we know is, is that she died, and she died going up this rock. I think, I think she rock. jumped. I think she commit, committed suicide. suicide. That's what I think. We'll never know. That's the thing. That's, I, I know, and I love it. As much as, I, as much as I hate not having a resolution, I absolutely love – I love the way this film was made. We've talked before. You know, I think we talked during um, Myra Breckenridge that I, I – I am a huge fan of seventies filmmaking. Mm-hmm. So I really loved that. And I loved the story and I loved, I really have a, a soft spot in my heart for films that don't have a resolution. 
I enjoyed this film a lot. I can see why it's such a revered film. And to all of the um, to the Australian listeners that are out there, and also to the Film Board of Southern Australia, yeah, you made yourself one very memorable movie. I mean, this is this is going to be a film that's going to be hard to forget. Um, it, and it, it is on. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned Lost Highway earlier because I definitely would put it up on that pedestal of a film that has really no resolve and is so mysterious. But you're so compelled by yeah. that no resolve, and you just you know it just is driving your brain nuts because you want to figure out what's going on, but you have enough puzzle pieces purposely set aside to where you're never going to get an absolute resolve. Again, it just it it, it drives you to the the point where. You're angry, but at the same time, you thoroughly enjoyed the experience. So I want to put this out there. You know, we have email addresses. We have social media accounts. We're going to have live events coming up next month. If you have any theories or if you know any any sources for any really cool ideas around this movie, let us know. Definitely. Because this is something that we're going to come back to, I'm guessing, and talk about more because it's just so compelling. We'll have to revisit it also at some point during the show because we now have the Americanized remake on Amazon Prime, uh, which has taken this book and has taken this movie and stretched it out into an eight-hour series, which makes (laughs) me go, okay, we're going to over-explain everything now just like we do in America. We're going to whack it with our big Jeff Bezos (laughs) dick. You're going to get to see at some point in the newspaper. Um, <laughs> until you understand every nuance that I wanted to put into this, you know, mini series uh, that was a two an hour and forty seven minute movie. Yeah, basically they're going to the Hobbit trilogy. It out, I'm pretty sure. So, I mean, I'm I'm curious enough to give it a look, but I don't think it's going to hold a candle uh, to. Uh, to what we experienced here. This, I mean, I say that this is our most hoity-toity highfalutin movie that we've seen, but at the same time, it is, for me, this was one of the most pleasing experiences I've had in the show. I'm glad that I got to see this because I, I was just drawn into the mystery the whole entire time, <laughs> and I was never, ever bored at all. No. I was never bored no. during this thing. I, I was on the edge of my seat from no, – I'm not going to say from Jump Street, not not from the point at which it started, but almost as soon as they got to Hanging Rock, I was on the edge of my seat. And I think this is the first because a lot of times I have to watch these movies in segments, mm-hmm. and I think this was the first – I think this was the first time I actually wrote you and said I cannot wait to finish this this movie. Well, because you, you wanted to see where it went, and the fact that it just ends just drives you nuts. Um I can't recommend this movie enough. I no, really can't. Yeah, absolutely. I cannot recommend this movie enough. I, I know we've recommended a lot of movies to see just out of sheer curiosity on this show. With the exception of our last episode, um, absolutely do not, under any circumstances, do not, no matter how badly you want to, do not see our last film. This movie is almost the polar opposite of riding the bus with my sister. Yes. Almost the, we could not have. This was definitely a palate cleanser. It really was. It was almost shocking 
to our, I can tell you for me, in, in terms of, you know, kicking my brain into this show gear to watch a film, um, it was almost more shocking that juxtaposition for me of having coming off of watching Andy McDowell and wanting and me wanting to murder her face for being an awful <laughs> human being. And then coming and then coming into this movie was jarring. It was like a, it was like I was in a car accident because of the differences. Yeah. Because everything in this movie is so subtle. And in that movie, everything was just beating you with Jeff Bezos' dick. Just um, <laughs> be my new metaphor for whacking you over the head with something. Um, yeah, it was it, it was pretty amazing. I can't re- I can't recommend this movie enough. Yeah, um, it was a ton of fun. It, Dot and the Kangaroo. It was not definitely no, it was not. Thank Dot you, the Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, our next film that we're going to look at first. First of all, um, again, like uh, he mentioned, we've got a live event coming up in March. If you are in the DFW area, or if you are coming to the convention AllCon, we are going to record a live episode at AllCon. Um, we're not going to watch a movie or anything. We're just going to discuss the podcast and field questions from the audience. It will not be episode 11, though. It'll probably be episode 12 uh, because we've already got the movie selected for episode 11, which is another movie. I I cannot wait to see your reaction to this one. Kiss uh, my ass. Oh, no. You're going to love this one because of what it is. Um, the next movie is called Rock and Rule. Uh, this is a Canadian animated feature from Nelvana. Uh, Nelvana is best known as being the animated studios behind the 80s incarnation of Alvin and the Chipmunks. Uh, but they were first placed on the map when they did a uh, animated short. It's hard to find now, but it is such an amazing animated short. If you can find it, definitely watch it. The Devil and Daniel Mouse. Um, but <clears throat> the, the 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 success of the Devil and Daniel Mouse allowed uh, this company to go on to make this movie rock and rule. Now, while the film was a bomb, it did get them the job for Alvin and the Chipmunks. So it does have a happy story to it, but it's kind of hard to believe that this movie rock and rule was a bomb. But then again, this was around in the seventies adult animation. Thanks to John Crick Felucci and everything. And, um, um, what's his face? Uh, Ralph Bashke and everybody. You know, mm-hmm. it was it was chic because of the success of Fritz the Cat and the Lord of. Even though it was not that great, the Lord of the Rings movie and stuff like that. This came in the early part of the '80s when the whole notion of adult animated films was dying, um, and this was also a 3D movie as well. And just with the voice cast alone, it should have been a hit, but it did not. I mean, we've got. Um, we've, we've got uh, the voices of Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, Debbie Harry, Paul Lamatt, uh, Robin Zander, Catherine O'Hara, Maurice LaMarche. I, this is one heck of a voice cast going on. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, it bombed big time, but it has a immersed as a cult film, but a lot of people don't seem to know about it. And again, one of the things we wanted to do with this show is to bring movies we feel that deserve a bigger spotlight on them to be shown. And in my opinion, rock and roll definitely deserves that. So I can't wait to talk about this one next. I I'm excited to. Yeah, for sure. So, um, again, we'll be at all con from March 14th through the 17th. 
Um, Andy will be not only uh, co-hosting the panel with me, but you've got your own things going on as well. I do. Yes. <laughs> um, don't ask. Don't ask me to tell you what they are. <laughs> go. Just go look at all all-con.org, and anytime there's a game show, chances are I'm going to be involved. Anytime there's a panel that says, hey, kids, comics, or JCU, there's a decent chance I'm going to show up there. Just just plan on me being there. I'm the Michael Ian Black of all con. <laughs> Um, and I'll be around too. I'll be, uh, like I said, I'll be showing the film. Um, I'm showing it twice actually. Shrek retold. Uh, got a couple of other video panels. Uh, got. Uh, I'm going to be doing a couple of game shows also. Um, so it's going to be a fun weekend. And you and I are co-hosting on purpose uh, two panels. One, the live episode of Colts and Catacombs, and then the midnight. Um, 80s trailers from hell basically uh panel where we're going to be showing uh these trailers from what we feel are prime examples of batshit crazy 80s horror films because because the 70s when it came to horror was very experimental and you know you could definitely tell that it was anti-establishment and they were wanting to push the boundaries of you know society norms and everything and then the 80s came and it was cocaine <laughs> it was Clint Howard and Cohen. <laughs> so, um, which which is funny because I'm not going to tell you the title yet, but our next film after Rock and Roll was definitely a product of cocaine. That's all I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, so keep that in mind. Uh, but yeah, you'll see us all running around and everything. So um, again, Picnic at Hanging Rock. It's available through the Criterion Collection. Um, it is also available on YouTube as well. Criterion did release it onto YouTube for people to watch, and that's how we were able to watch it. And it's just—it's an amazing film. You—you you don't. Oh, I rented that way. shit in HD. You rented it. Wow. Oh yeah. I well, this is a movie that I suggested that we watch. I, I and I've wanted to watch for God ever, literally. So I was like, you know what? I'm gonna do it right. So I went and rented it on Amazon in HD. Jeff well, Bezos dick hashtag. Um, the Bezos. <laughs> well, I hate to tell you this, but Amazon had it in HD for free in 1080p. And it was the Criterion Collection print. Really? Yes. Well, <laughs> Sorry to tell you that. But yeah, they had they had it up there. That's how much they want people to see this movie. So I'll tell you this, it's making me gonna go buy it on the Criterion Collection because I do want to own this movie. So um, if, if that was their main goal, con congratulations. You got me to want to go buy this movie. So Right. Right, right, right. All righty. Well, tune in next time as we discuss the animated rock epic, Rock and Rule, with Lou Reed as the villain, appropriate casting. And um, we'll uh, see you next time. So talk to you later. <laughs>